Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, using data for more equitable results. It's Thursday, September 15th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Voting's open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. You can vote for your choices till September 30th. And we announced the 2022 winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your votes in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Most agencies don't think they'll have the resources to fulfill the administration's executive order on zero trust. Money is what key leaders in those agencies list as their biggest obstacle, according to new FedScoop research. Jeff Phillips is vice president of the public sector at Ubico. Jeff, welcome. It's great to see you again. What's the biggest problem that you're talking to people in agencies about? What are they telling you they're really struggling with right now? Well, Francis, thank you for uh, welcoming me to the show like that. Um, Pleasure to see you as well again. It's talent, lack of talent, competing for talent, Mm. talent not showing up, being reliable if they went through the process. Uh, It's amazing. Cybersecurity has become such a um, major, major life event. It doesn't matter what field you're in. doesn't matter if it's, you know, civilian. doesn't matter if it's, you know, military. It's... Across the board. It's in everybody's day, everyday mm-hmm. life, hourly, in fact. Yeah. The talent problem is striking because we've seen this kind of mashup, I think, between what's going on in kind of the general employment world. You're talking about, um, you know, people not showing up the first day after they've uh, gone through the whole vetting process and uh, you know, quiet quitting and all of these kinds of things. This is starting to manifest itself in our little cybersecurity world, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And, and it's hard to plan. It's hard to actually execute. And it's hard to complete mission, mm-hmm. which is not a very good thing. No. Tactically, what are agencies doing that are succeeding, in your view, to try to mitigate these problems, to deal with these challenges, what are they doing to do so, do you think? Well, I think a lot of them are getting, um, uh, let's, let's call it being clever. And w- what I mean by that is, is they're taking some commercial approaches, such as let's, let's build a career here. Let's show you, you know, f- your first three years uh, up to your, the, the magic mark of 20 years, if you're a federal employee. And um, here could be your career path. So that's one thing that it's better well laid out versus having to try to navigate those waters on your own, which is how it used to be in the past. I also think they're adding bonuses. And, you know, kudos to Congress for, you know, obligating some more money to allow for that type of uh, behavior. We're seeing some cool things, too, at some of the agencies. DHS has their cyber talent management system still ramping it up and some reports about um, challenges to get people in even after that. But there are some innovative things out there. What are you seeing tactically that agencies are doing well and that maybe they're struggling with or have where there's potential to, to grow? Well, what they're doing well is um, talking about mission and talking about the, the, the need to serve your country. Um, freedom's not free. Uh, I think everybody, regardless of uh, political affiliation, will agree with that. And uh, you have to really feel the call to serve. In, in some capacity. And I think they talk about that, emphasize that. I, I do believe it's important. Um, it certainly makes a difference in everyone's lives and in, in our way of life. What they're not doing well um, is some of the agencies, they're just still stuck in their old ways mm. and they're still stuck in the old processes and they're not innovating. 
And that's where it gets, you know, too um, boring. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens with this next generation of constant media. Yeah. What I worry about is the idea that agencies go, let's innovate and then maybe aren't sure exactly what that means rather than thinking what's a problem that we have to solve what are the ways we would normally solve that problem and let's try to find some other way than we would normally do so to solve that problem that strikes me as maybe a more constructive way to think about it is that oh, on the right track absolutely i you, you know just stating the problem isn't good enough you have to plan yeah. and and think it through mm -hmm. uh, what is the thing the government's really good about uh planning and process so, but what they're not good about is, is scale uh, or speed to scale is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. How do, how do we get those people, man? How much of the conversations that you have with agency people revolve around kind of conceptual things like we're talking about so far? Right. And how many of them are really nuts and bolts things like we have to implement this executive order, zero trust executive order, right. cyber executive order, those kinds of things? Well, you know, the good thing about my team and my staff and myself is we, we want to understand what the, the true mission is first and foremost. Then we talk about, well, how do you get there from a resource? Resource is not just about money. It's about human as well. It's also about technology. It's about all of those things that make up the, the mission success. If you don't understand those things, that's why we, that's why I know a little bit about this, then you're not really going to be uh, relevant. Mm -hmm in the success factor and you know how do you separate yourself from other vendors one you care two you bring some talent right i offer up that government is here to serve the people right for the people i'm not going to give everybody a history lesson sorry that's my dad was a history <laughs> okay. history teacher so it's just ingrained in me um but where, where i was going with that is is that people really need to uh get to automation and they need to think of what, what does innovation mean? Mm -hmm. Like uh, my mother, she loves the iPhone and the iPad. She's 78 years old. She's embraced it. She's innovating with it. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's what you need to, to do more of as it goes to talent. So what are people doing out there in talent? Is the government, you know, putting things out on the, the uh, job boards on Indeed? I don't know. I haven't looked. Yeah. But those are the type of innovative things I think people need to start looking at but that idea is interesting to me about your mom because it occurs to me you're right she's innovating she's doing things that yeah. she hasn't done before or doing things in a different way than she's done them before and i wonder if maybe we overthink the whole idea of innovation sometimes we're so focused on innovating that we don't think about we're already kind of doing it so let's just go about our business but maybe in a different way well my personal opinion is we over engineer everything all the time <laughs> I've been married for 27 years, love my wife to death, but there's a lot of things she's over-engineered. Let's just go with it and, and act. And uh, there's goodness and badness that needs to be disciplined, right? Um, that's, that's key to, to getting the most out of what the problem is. Uh, resolution will be. You talked about serving the citizen a moment ago. Yeah. And it strikes me that that takes us to the customer experience mandate that agencies are under too. And I wonder if you're seeing, if any, an intersection between the way that agencies are thinking about customer experience and the way they're thinking about cybersecurity, whether it's citizen-facing customer experience or the internal customers, the, the users of their own systems, their own employees. 
um, to to think about what that experience is like for them. Because, I mean, employees have been complaining about cybersecurity uh, requirements and processes and so on internally probably ever since there was such a thing. Yeah, and, and my selfish plug for my employer, Ubico, is we're, we're all about the simplicity and UX and security for someone's computing needs. What, well, what does that mean? Well, in this new generation, nobody, uh, you know, does all of their processing of data or workload, if they're in, uh, you know, that world of data manipulation or consumption on a workstation or a laptop. It's done on a tablet. It's done on an iPhone. Well, we have a uh, authenticator. That's the equivalent of a PivCAC, which I give government kudos. I have for years. They're at the forefront of really strict crypto multi-factor authentication with identity proofing at the forefront of it all. Fantastic job. Problem is, in my opinion, and, and I think for those that are uh, more modernized, cloud and mobile have made that very um, hard mm-hmm. to go down that platform because it's not uh, user friendly. It's almost been overcome by events, hasn't it? Totally. I mean, just technology is just different it's now than totally, it was in 2006. Totally, totally. So we've uh, invented the, just an AAL3. Why does that matter? It's the highest assurance level you can have for authentication. Um, I always say to everybody, I used to be on the side where we just did a mobile authenticator, right? Everybody gets a six digit pin. Well, that can be, you know, infiltrated. It mm-hmm. can be hacked. Um, AAL3 authenticators cannot um, in theory, because they're crypto. And so that just makes it that much harder. And it involves this this one thing that I think is amazing that people are forgetting about, or it's just going by them, in my personal perspective. The machine learning and the uh, artificial intelligence is fantastic. It's off the chart. It's way ahead of our time, and it's only getting better every day. However, it cannot simulate human it cannot, someone's got to convince me how it, any of that can simulate a human. Our technology involves human step up. Mm-hmm. That's why it's more secure. Why is a PIV and CAC so secure? It still involves human step up. All those other technologies that were out there that everyone liked for convenience factor are all at risk from machine learning, artificial intelligence, and just the bad actors out there, you know, Non-friendly nation states, as they say. That's right. How are we doing as a as a nation, and how is the cybersecurity industry doing as an industry at trying to get ahead of the bad guy? I mean, for years it's been not reactive or responsive necessarily, but not far behind that. Where okay, there's a hack, and now we figure out how to clean up after it. Are are we getting ahead of the curve at all? Well. Is that when, po- or is it even possible? I don't know that it'll ever be possible to be ahead of the curve, um, unless all of a sudden we decide we, we need you know to reallocate or reprioritize funding. You know that would be the only way they could they could certainly put a huge dent in that. Um, but it's also talent. Back to what our original conversation was. Uh, you know we're now making the investments in the cyber schools, the cyber education, the. Um, you know, the sandbox or the sandlots for everybody to go play and learn and, and uh, share and collaborate. Uh, there is definitely more of an investment in this than there ever has been. Mm-hmm. So definitely things are getting better than they ever have been. But we have a, still a huge curve. Here's why. Policy is for a reason, but when it comes to technology, it's oil and vinegar. The technology is out there to help us take care of things right now. Policy isn't up to speed with that. Yeah. I've talked to you a number of times over the years enough to know I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. 
Are you optimistic, pessimistic, or neutral about the future of the cyber industry and the federal government's ability to defend itself against outside threats? I am absolutely optimistic. I had it. Yeah. I had it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, The amount of attention from the current administration to the Hill, to all the the bureaus, agencies, and departments, this is everything everyone has common Mm -hmm. bond over. There's really no, you know, conflict. So that's helpful, right? But again, this is the world we live in today. We were talking earlier. My children take tests now on their phones. They don't need a workstation. I repeat that because I'm still amazed by that. It just (laughs) blows my mind. Because that's how we're consuming data. Jeff Phillips of Ubico. Great conversation. It's great to see you again. Hey, you too, Francis. Thank you so much. You can read more about all the cyber initiatives in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The chief data scientist of the United States is pursuing equitable outcomes for citizens. Denise Ross is the chief data scientist of the U.S. In this exclusive interview with FedScoop's Dave Nitschapier, she says her mission and priorities are very clear. There's one, been one other chief data scientist, that was DJ Patel, and uh, he laid out the, the purpose of the role being to unlock the power of data to benefit all Americans. Um, responsibly unlock <laughs> the power data, and uh, and and in this administration, the focus is really on the benefiting all Americans. Um, the president's been unambiguous about his commitment to equity, um, and I, I love that. I'm all in. So the first thing, so even before I joined the administration, every time an executive order would come out. Um, the first thing I do is search for the word data and see how many times it shows up. And uh, and it's been really consistent. I mean, like that policing executive order that dropped um, just a couple of months ago mentioned data 64 times. So the role of data and equity in this administration is really clear. Um, so given that North Star, uh, my focus over the last 10 months or so has been building a team. Um, that won't surprise you, um, and operationalizing those recommendations from the Equitable Data Working Group. Um, on the team building, the um, when I when I talk about a team, I'm thinking both about a small team within the Office of Science and Technology Policy, but also our larger team, the federal family of people, um, data practitioners um, working inside agencies. And um, the uh, the other thing that DJ, my predecessor, used to say all the time was that data science is a team sport, and that's absolutely true. And the most important thing about that team is that it's diverse, um, gender, racial, ethnicity, ethnic diversity, um, and also that we have diversity of lived experiences. So as we're building the team, and as I'm, um, you know, trying to recruit. Uh, new folks into federal government and um, encourage current uh, career feds to upskill in data science. I'm always looking at, at making sure that we've got a diverse representative team at the table. Um, on the equitable data working group implementation, that's um, that was just so fun when it when those recommendations dropped in April. Um, and because uh, now everybody is talking about disaggregating data. It used to be, you know, I've been in this field for 20 years and um, and I always avoided that word because it was so jargony and nobody knew what we were talking about it. And now in government meetings all over the place when I, where, when I, uh, when I attend, people are talking about the need to disaggregate data. And so that's that's definitely been internalized um, at the agency level. And what's what's 
Uh, uh, really exciting about this equitable data work is that it's not just about the disaggregating of the data so you can slice and dice it to identify disparities in like who's being served by policies and programs and who's being left behind. So that's that's an important part of it. But what, where it really meets the road is that you then identify opportunities where you can change policies and program design to result in more equitable outcomes. So it's not just about data for data's sake, it's actually about changing outcomes for the American people. And um, with that, I've always, um, I've always viewed data as uh, not an end to itself, like you never just publish data for data's sake. Um, and instead, what I've been doing is, is identifying uh, areas within the administration that already have tremendous momentum. There are some obvious ones, right? The bipartisan infrastructure law um, has uh, uh, has $1.2 trillion behind it. We've now got the um, Inflation Reduction Act, the Customer Experience Executive Order on reducing barriers to, um, to Americans accessing uh, federal benefits, um, and that policing executive order that, that went live in, in April. Um, so, so those administration priorities, what I do is, is infuse equitable data into those priorities. So data isn't a side thing, but it's actually um, integrated into how we design programs and policies. And so, you know, so again, my, my focus is really on turning data into action for more equitable outcomes for the American people. Now, uh, since you brought up the equitable data working groups uh, mm -hmm. recommendations, I want I'll, I'll go there next. Uh, okay. Whose job is it to act on, on these recommendations? Is there a way to kind of enforce that action? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the 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 uh, the jobs fell into two main categories. Um, some of those recommendations fall squarely with my colleagues in OMB and the chief statistician, Karen Orvis. Um, that would be um, like, for example, modernizing statistical policy directive 15, as you probably know, it hasn't been updated in 25 years. Those are the race and ethnicity categories that are definitely showing their age and lack of relevance. Um, and so they've been doing things, um, uh, so that they, they, they expect at this point that they're, um, they'll be done with that work by summer of 2024 which feels like a long time away because we've got um, a lot of work to do in the meantime and those old race and ethnicity categories just are really not um, not doing their part anymore. So OMB has been filling the gap. They recently um, released a plain language explanation of how to make the best use of the existing race and ethnicity data standards. Uh, while we're awaiting that revised guidance, um, including some really practical advice on um, flexibilities that agencies have for disaggregating race and ethnicity um, approaches for presenting data on um, more than one race and some good advice on um, whether to add a, a some other race category to your forms or surveys. Uh, I'll just I'll just spoil that one. You should not add some other race category <laughs> to your forms and surveys because it, then it makes your data really <laughs> unusable. Um, and they and they also uh, just announced um, uh, that they'll start holding listening sessions on September 15th. That'll be their first one, and soon they'll issue an RFI. So they've really hit the ground running, um, collecting feedback from our colleagues across the federal space and also from the public. So that's a huge piece of, of course, the Equitable Data Working Group recommendations. And the federal government, as you know, plays um, 
a really important role in signaling to state and local governments how they should be collecting their data. And so, um, and so this, this update of the SPD 15, those, um, those guidelines on um, race and ethnicity questions, it's gonna be a, a real ripple effect across state and local governments. Um, and in fact, some state governments like California are already really leaning into what new race categories um, they, might, you know, they, they might wanna be using the uh, implementing so impl implementing everything that's not squarely an OMB um, uh, an OMB role that's in that falls to the National Science and Technology Council subcommittee on equitable data which I'm co-chairing and we're in the process of standing up and um, and that's what I love about the National Science and Technology Council is it's it's a um, an opportunity for agency people to roll up their sleeves and like work on a common problem together. Um, and and when I when I learned more about this NSTC structure, uh, what I appreciated about it is that a really successful subcommittee is one that delivers so much value to the agencies that when it's about ready to expire, the career folks are like, can we please keep this going? <laughs> so it's not a top-down thing. It's like, okay, we're, you know, let's figure this out together and let's have the right people at the table, sort of the doers from across federal agencies, um, help figure out some of these, these um, big challenges of how, we, how do we make disaggregated data the norm, for example, while protecting privacy. And um, how do we uh, how do we make better use of of underused data so that we don't keep overburdening recipients um, uh, with with questions um, about their demographics? And how do we build you know robust capacity for equity assessment um, inside of agencies for making policies and implementing programs? Um, and then and then of course uh, you know government can't do it all alone. And so how how can we be a, how can we galvanize partnerships across state, local, tribal, and territorial governments, um, across nonprofits and the research communities so that uh, we're making the most out of the federal data that we're collecting. And then the last recommendation is to be accountable to the American public um, through tools that allow civil society and communities to use and visualize federal data. So this is sort of like the next gen of open data, right? Um, it's uh, really being accountable with these disaggregated data. I'll, since you brought it up, I, I'll stick mm -hmm. with I'll stick with open data for for my next question because uh, I, I've been hearing not necessarily complaints, but 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 a lot of people talk about how open data often takes a backseat to a lot of other agency priorities, especially now that we have sort of the zero trust cybersecurity order. Uh, there, there's been some concern that open data just isn't as big a priority as it, it, it might have been a year or two ago. Is that something yeah. you're seeing in government and how do you keep that top of mind in other agencies' minds? What are you doing to make sure that open data is still prioritized? Yeah, um, and I, I like open data was, uh, it's that's where I spent most of my career was as an I started actually my career in, uh, as an open data advocate um, like 20, 20 years ago in New Orleans, and um, and so the openness and transparency is like critical to everything that we do. What has shifted, I think, is um, and and this is a good thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a story to illustrate this. So when I was in the Obama administration, um, 
was a presidential innovation fellow and this was after the police killing of michael brown in ferguson missouri and all of the civil unrest and this national dialogue about police use of force and we didn't have enough data to know is it getting better is it getting worse are certain is it disproportionately against brown and black communities um are there are there parts of the country that are that are using more force desperately than others there were no police departments releasing data on use of force or complaints from citizens, um, uh, the, the type of information that we needed to have a, an informed dialogue as a nation about this issue. And so we, um, my colleague Clarence Wardell and I proposed this, this initiative called the Police Data Initiative. And, um, and we started with 14 police departments and got them each to commit to opening at least three data sets about policing. And almost always use of force was one of those three data sets. And so by the end of the administration, we had 129 jurisdictions signed on um, and hey, they had all committed to opening at least three data sets on policing. And we certainly changed, um, we changed the nature of what police departments expect in terms of transparency and accountability and what type of data they need to be publishing. And we changed um, citizen expectations of what types of, what type of transparency to expect from their police departments. But we didn't create a mechanism for turning that data into action. <laughs> so that's like, that's why I'm back is because like, open data is necessary and not sufficient to drive the type of action that we need to create a more equitable society. And so the focus now that, that what, I, what I love about equitable data is this focus on um, let's slice and dice the data to see who's being disproportionately affected, who's not being served by federal programs and policies, and then and do that in such a way that you can make mid-course corrections and steer the direction of a program or policy so that it narrows those gaps and we end up with more equitable outcomes. And that take that last mile of turning data into action is really time intensive and requires different skill sets and different people. And um, and 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 I, but I, I think it's that's the right place for us to be right now um, is figuring out how how to make sure that the data that we're that we're working with inside of government and that we're publishing making available to the public is actually yielding better outcomes. Now, speaking of skill sets and people, are you working at all with other agencies like OMB, GSA? I know USDS had a big sort of push where they were working on a hiring authority project with other agencies to get data scientists on board. Are you working or involved with any of those sort of data scientists and analyst hiring initiatives in government? The, um, the great news is that they, that work was well underway when I came in and it's just really exciting. I mean, things are so much different now um, in terms of data science capacity across, the fed, across federal agencies than they were in the Obama administration when, when, um, when this concept of tech and data in government was, was really gaining hold. Um, and so, so I'm really sort of more of a beneficiary of the data, data practitioners that are already in um, federal agencies because of these efforts. Um, certainly one thing that I always prioritize is getting the word out about these roles. Um, and uh, you know, so anytime I'm talking to people, um, there's, I'm always issuing the call to action. Um, and, uh, and we do, I do work closely with OPM and um, the, uh, they, they've got a surge team for the White House um, uh, infrastructure implementation. And because uh, yeah, we've got to hire hundreds of STEM jobs 
in order to support the infrastructure investments and uh, and so how do we, how do we how do we get those people like in order to in order to to do the analyses in order to make sure that we're delivering these infrastructure dollars where they're most needed you need data people inside of government um, and of course that's challenging because sometimes when we uh, our job descriptions aren't really that attractive <laughs> to the type of talent that we want um, and uh, and so that that like tried to tried to attract um, diverse talent with um, rep, you know with life experiences um, that are reflected in the work that we're doing is uh, is one of the things that we're working on with with OPM. Um, and then I, I will say I'm just uh, such a huge supporter of the new U.S. Digital Core Fellowship. That's for early career technologists. They've got a very strong data science track. Um, I do. I, I work directly um, with a, a U.S. Digital Core fellow who supports the infrastructure implementation through our subcommittee on equitable data. Uh, her name is Meredith Brown, and um, I have to keep reminding myself that this is her first real job. Like the the training in data science that she got as an undergrad so well prepared her for work in this somewhat ambiguous environment in federal government. Um, so I'm, I'm just really excited about, about that work. And, um, you know, and, and I hope, I really hope that it, it ends up um, leading to a pipeline of, of new career, career feds who are doing data science. Now, earlier you mentioned that with the release of the Equitable Data Working Group's recommendations that uh, you were kind of excited because agencies are now uh, talking about disaggregated data. Um, and I, so I wanted to, to get your sense for, do you think government is good at collecting disaggregated data yet? And, and if not, what needs to change? What detailed steps are you sort of taking to, to improve, improve that process? Yeah, so um, it's a mixed bag um, about how good we are at collecting disaggregated data. And it's really not just, though, about collecting the disaggregated data. It's um, then what do we do about it in order to yield more equitable outcomes, so that whole life cycle of, of the data. Uh, but there are some, there are some bright spots. Um, for example, um, the Department of Education to the, the ICSP, the Interagency Council on Statistical Policy. I don't know if you saw that they um, recently, in the last few months, released a searchable catalog of federal data sets that include disaggregated data about Asian, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander populations. So they're sort of rounding up all of the, all this, all the survey data that are already doing a good job of disaggregating um, for, that, for that community. Um, and then we also see, see things more broadly, for example, with the use of administrative data where agencies um, are, for example, disaggregating the data on where they're giving out grants to, to see if the areas that need resources the most are getting the resources they need, or if they need to, you know, to, to provide more technical assistance to community, to lower capacity communities in order for them to be able to compete for those funds. Um, so I'm so I'm I'm heartened by the baby steps that are being taken on the survey side, and also on the um, administrative data and turn you know using the data to to drive more equitable outcomes. Now, uh, do you work closely uh, with the federal CDO council at all? When it, especially when it comes to to issues like data sharing, linkage, and access issues, which I know agencies that are involved in that council are, are also big on and trying to improve. Uh, and if you do work with them, what has that work been like? 
Yeah, so the, the CDO Council um, has obviously been leading the way on those day-to-day -day challenges. Um, and they're great because they have the, the frontline experience to try to get data sharing to work and expand access. Um, so the, and that's very complementary to the work that, that, that we do, which is Im, embedded in these sort of high momentum administration priorities. And, um, and, and it's also different than this, this equitable data lens that, that, that we use in, in the work that I do. Um, so, so I'd say the work is very complementary, um, and we end up sitting at the same table often. Um, and I'm just so grateful for the the foundation building that the CDO Council is doing, and then we're trying to like apply it in these specific contexts. The, I know the Equitable Data Working Group has sort of given way to the subcommittee on equitable data now that the recommendations have been made. Can you talk a little bit about what that transition has been like and the early work of the subcommittee? Um, yeah, well, the, so the um, the transition's been fantastic because I, the recommendations were just so solid, <laughs> um, and uh, and and so now it's a question of anything that we do, we want to make sure that we're creating durable change, um, and that means engaging the right folks um, from from across agencies to figure out what it looks like to operationalize these recommendations. The recommendations aren't prescriptive. I mean, there's still so much room to figure out how to do how to do the work. Um, and it's really the, the career data practitioners inside of agencies who are who are going to be best positioned to do that. The good news is, is that we have like political top political cover from the top in order to disaggregate the data, reveal the disparities that folks probably already have a sensor there, but maybe haven't analyzed before, and then do something to narrow those gaps. Um, the other thing that, that, the other big lift as we stand up this subcommittee on equitable data is, is harvesting the wisdom of um, those who've been doing this work outside of federal government. Um, I remember when I, um, when I was, when I was uh, working at the local level on data issues, uh, I guess 10 years ago now, when that open data, the open government directive came down, it was mind blowing for me. It was really inspirational about like, oh, okay, this is this changes what I expect in terms of open data and transparency from my local government. So there was a big trickle down effect um, around with, with local governments and then state governments that the open data movement at the federal level have had. Equitable, equitable data is sort of the opposite. Um, in that in many cases, local communities are ahead of the federal government um, and, and people have been doing this work on the ground. Civil rights organizations, advocacy organizations have been calling for disaggregated data, have been doing equity assessments on their own in order to, to advocate for, for more just outcomes. And so, so these requests for information, for example, that we recently released one on sexual orientation and gender identity data, and then one on engagement and accountability. Like we're, we're really serious about these RFIs because we need the wisdom from the field in order to be able to, um, to implement this equitable, these equitable data working group recommendations um, in the most useful way inside of federal government. Now, at the start, we talked about uh, sort of your priorities since you came on board, but can you talk a little bit about what your priorities are for the rest of the year, and, and what do you see as the biggest obstacles to achieving your goals? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, so my, my priority for the rest of 2022 is um, to get these interagency collaborations going through the Subcommittee on Equitable Data. 
Um, that includes working on sexual orientation and gender identity data, um, infrastructure investment, equity assessments. There's a, um, an interagency working group on data that was called for in the policing executive order this spring. So standing, standing those working groups up. And, um, and our biggest challenge <laughs> is, um, is sort of twofold, but it's related. And it's the hybrid nature of, the wor of all work these days. You know, it used to be that there would be civic tech or the government tech and innovation summits. And we'd, we'd bump into people and we'd hear about all the amazing work happening at the agency level. Um, and there's, there's, there aren't events like that anymore, really, to bump into people and hear about the great work that's happening. And so... Um, so that's, that's been tough. And, and also, as we're collaborating across agencies in a hybrid or mostly remote environment, the collaboration tools that we have are just mostly not compatible. Yeah. <laughs> and so we end up doing, uh, we end up making the most of what we can with a, you know, a PowerPoint and a Zoom call. Um, but that's, that's a far cry from being in the same room with a bunch of post-it notes and really doing some solid design thinking um, using the best available tools. Denise Ross, the Chief Data Scientist of the United States. You can read more about her and her work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your shows and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Monday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.